Hello, this is Pastor Aaron Shepherd, and you are listening to the sermon podcast of Union Congregational Church, the church by the park in East Walpole, Massachusetts. At Union, we believe in the power of God's word. And so whether you are able to join us when we gather each week at 1015 on Sunday mornings, or whenever or wherever this podcast finds you, I hope that you are inspired anew to deeper faith and greater resolve by the message of the gospel. Our current sermon series is called The Saints of Summer. Throughout this summer, we are assembling an all-star lineup of both well-known and less well-known people whose lives proclaim the good news of God's grace. Here's this week's message. This morning, our scripture reading is from Genesis 32, verses 22 through 28. The same night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise, everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Thus ends the reading of the scripture. This week is our second in a series of scriptures uh, and sermons for the summer called the Saints of Summer. This morning we turn to the story and the life of Megan Rohr. In 2010 at St. Mark's Lutheran Church in San Francisco, seven individuals were ordained to ministry in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. This is the largest Lutheran denomination in the country, and of course, seven people being ordained is a, is a wonderful thing, but it's not all that uncommon. What was unique about this day was that this was the first ordination service after the ELCA removed a ban prohibiting lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and otherwise queer or gender non-conforming people to be pastors. <laughs> and among those seven people was Megan Rohr a 30-year-old transgender person who had grown up in South Dakota in the heart of Lutherandom. Megan went to a conservative Lutheran church and a conservative Lutheran college and was subjected to all sorts of bullying when they came out. People would write Bible verses about how it would be better if I had drowned in the ocean than to tell anyone else that being gay was okay, Megan later recalled. But they said, as I became more queer, I also became more faithful. The, the intolerance coded in religion that Megan experienced actually motivated them to attend seminary, to study and to understand what I knew in my gut was okay, Megan says, that who they were was first and foremost a child of God, regardless of what anyone else had to say. Now, Reverend Rohr is a trans person, meaning that they don't fit exactly into either gender categories that we're familiar with, man and woman, hence the pronoun use of they instead of him or her. I saw an interview Megan did with uh, Cosmopolitan magazine. 
in which they said, I use the pronoun they because I, I haven't figured it out and it's a good placeholder until I do. I haven't figured out where exactly I land. But of course, this was not always the case. As a child, Megan was raised as a girl and expected to become a woman. But children don't always live up to parents' expectations in all sorts of ways. And that conflict can persist, especially in the life of a trans person. The conflict between what others expect and, and what they experience. These designations of man and woman, these gender categories we use, they are, they are mental shortcuts that we use when we're understanding and meeting new people. It is, it is a helpful mental shortcut at times to, to simplify things for ourselves. The simplest form of these shortcuts are called dualisms. It's when we divide the world up into two categories of things, uh, man and woman, nature and culture, conservative, liberal, Red Sox fans and Yankees fans. <laughs> and of course, all these dualisms, the thing about a dualism is it also tends to imply a hierarchy. One of them is sort of treated as more essential, more important than the other, hence Red Sox fans, good. <laughs> Yankees fans, otherwise. <laughs> but there's nothing inevitable about this way of thinking, about thinking in these dualisms. Again, it is a trick, it is a tool that we use, but it is not always the right tool. Indeed, the more we learn and grow, the more we come to realize that the world is too complicated to be divided up into these black and white categories. Indeed, God did not color this world with shades of gray, but with a vast spectrum of colors that lend creation all of its visual beauty. Likewise, the more we learn and grow, the more we encounter people who are different from us, who do not fit neatly into binary categories that we use as shortcuts in our minds. We meet people who are advanced in years, but, but are young in spirit. We meet people who are incredibly smart and driven, but also deeply selfish and greedy. We meet liberals who own guns, and we meet conservatives who support LGBTQ rights. In our rush to, to grasp the world as quickly as possible, we, we sometimes tend to treat things and people simplistically, assuming they are just the way we think they are, Instead of recognizing and slowing down that in God's creation, we are all more complicated than we first appear. We are all in the process of becoming something new and different. For some of us, it is easier to become who and what we are, our lives playing out along familiar or well-worn paths, going into the family business, going to the family college, doing the things that everyone expects. And for some, that fits. But for others, for others, life is a constant struggle in tension with those expectations. For others, being who they are meant to be is a matter of life and death, a wrestling match with both humans and God. And that is the story that we heard in the scripture here today when Jacob, Jacob, who from the time he was born had always been striving to be different from who he was. He was born second, but he wanted to be the first. And so he used schemes and stratagems to alienate his older brother and take things from him. 
And in the end, this alienation grew into a deep rivalry between the two brothers, to the point where when Jacob heard that Esau was coming, he sends his family and his possessions away because he fears that they will be taken from him by his brother. But it wasn't just Esau that he has the conflict with. As we heard, a man comes and he wrestles all night long. This is understood to be a conflict between Jacob and God. A struggle between who Jacob thought he would be and who God called him to be. And there's this climactic moment, this climactic moment when the, the man he struggles with cannot prevail. And so Jacob, Jacob realizes that he, ha he might be winning, but then there's one final move. His hip is put out of the socket, and yet Jacob's life is still preserved. That conflict for Jacob resulted both in a change in his body and in his spirit, which is marked by the giving of a new name, a new way of moving through the world. His name is now called Israel. His walk is now a limp. But in that new identity, he is closer to God than he ever has been before. And that must have taken his family by surprise when they reunited. Can you imagine him showing up the next day and saying, my name's not Jacob anymore. It's Israel. In, uh, in a book called Something That May Shock and Discredit You, author Daniel Lavery reflects on this passage in a chapter called, And His Name Shall Be Called Something Hard to Remember. <laughs> they said to him, it's not that we don't like the new name, Israel. It's just that we've always called you Jacob. We're used to it. And he said to them, right, I get that. I do know you've always called me by that name. I haven't forgotten that, and I've gotten used to it too. But, uh, but I really appreciate you bearing with me on this. And they said, well, well, you have to know that we're going to get it wrong sometimes. We're going to forget a lot, and we're going to use your old name. And you got to know that. And they said that a lot. And everyone said that too, with astonishing regularity upon hearing the new name, so much so that when Jacob, sorry, Israel, told anyone about it, he started saying it for them to save time, excusing them in advance. And some of them, it goes on to say, took, it'll take some time to adjust as forever, which had not been what Jacob had meant at all. Uh, Israel, sorry, sorry, it's just that my brain is so used to saying Jacob because you really are Jacob, just Jacob doing something weird these days. And that's totally fine. That's totally fine. Don't feel bad. Israel says, I didn't even notice. But of course, Israel did notice. Anyone would notice when something in them has been changed, but the world around them does not acknowledge it. Lavery is reflecting upon his own experience of being dead-named, which is what it's called when a trans person is referred to by a previous name. Lavery was born into a conservative evangelical family, hence his familiarity with all of these Bible stories that are sprinkled throughout his book. He was named and baptized Mallory and raised as a girl, but for him, throughout his life, he had this nagging sense that something about this did not fit until all of those doubts and worries crystallized in this simple question. What if you were you, but different? What if you were a man, sort of? 
Have we all not wondered at some time or another if we could be different? If we were us, but different? Children certainly do that. They talk about it all the time. They talk about what they're going to grow up to be, what they'll be when they're all grown up. Perhaps that's why Jesus was always encouraging us to have a childlike attitude, to think about how we could be different when we, too, grow up. But as we do, we tend to stop expecting people to change. We expect that once you reach a certain height or a certain age, there will be some end point, and then you will just be who you are. But that is not how life works. Trans people live this reality that we all are caught between who we have been and who we are becoming. And that God is in the midst of all of that. Last year, Reverend Megan Rohr became the first openly transgender bishop in the ELCA, a position that gave them uh, authority over churches in the San Francisco area. It gave them great visibility and visibility for the trans community to have someone in such a position. But then just three weeks ago, as I was preparing this series, Rohr was forced to resign from that position after a scandal involving uh, an interaction with a church there in San Francisco. And I hesitate to dig into the details because this is church business, and we all know how churches can take small things and turn them into big things because churches are places where small things matter. And I was, I was reading about this controversy, and I wondered if it would be problematic to retain Reverend Rohr on this roster of the Saints of Summer. But I got to thinking, what does it mean to be a saint? Does it mean that you're completely flawless? Or, in the words of Nelson Mandela we heard last week, does it mean that you're a sinner who keeps on trying? The word saint actually comes to us from the Latin word sanctus, which is the basis for the word sanctification, a word that shows up all throughout the scriptures. In Romans 6, sanctification is described this way. Now that you have been freed from sin and made a servant to God, the advantage you get is sanctification, and the end is eternal life. Sanctification is the gift we get, not by our own doing, but as a result of the struggle of God with humankind in the person of Jesus on the cross, where he suffered under the weight of the world, striving to redeem the world to come, what would be after him. And he died there on the cross. But then he was alive again, but different. He rose, no longer Jesus of Nazareth, but Christ Jesus. He had a new name. He had this new resurrected body. He was the same, yet different. And it is through that becoming, the Apostle Paul reminds us, that we receive our redemption, our transformation, our sanctification. And in baptism, in baptism most of all, we remember and we claim this process of transformation, that we are baptized into the suffering and death of Christ and baptized into his resurrection to fulfill that promise that we can be different, that we will be different. And so we name and we claim a beloved child of God as God's own. And in doing so, we acknowledge that none of us are ever merely as we are, but always becoming 
a new creation, always becoming something new. And that the promise of God is that we will be named and blessed and sanctified too. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope this week's message has been a blessing to you. I know that having you listen to it is a blessing to our church. For more information about Union and its ministries, you can visit churchbythepark.org or find us on social media. Our handle is at churchbythepark. Our theme music is by the 126ers. Once again, blessings on your day, on your week, and may the peace of Christ be with you.